Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the film streaming at BYU's International Cinema. This is our 13th podcast of winter semester 2021. I'm Mark Yamada, co-director of International Cinema, and today we are discussing the film The Reason I Jump from 2020, which is streaming this week. Based on a book by Naoki Higashida, an autistic boy from Japan, this innovative documentary aims to utilize immersive sound design, cinematography, and editing to bring the viewer directly into the minds of non-speaking autistic people around the world, transforming the way that we think about the condition. To discuss the film, we have two very qualified guests with us here today. Natalie Nielsen-Reap is the mother of an 18-year-old son with autism. Previously, she was involved in the efforts to mandate insurance coverage for autism therapy. Currently, she advocates for autistic individuals to have a place in church and in employment and is involved with several online autism groups, including groups that are led by adult autistics. Natalie holds a Master's of Education from UCLA and a Master's of Business Administration from BYU and currently teaches Chinese in the Department of Asian and Near Eastern Languages at BYU. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Mark. Michael South is professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University. He received a BA from Yale University, followed by a PhD in child clinical psychology at the University of Utah. He returned to Yale for postdoctoral training in developmental neuroimaging. His research program is focused on understanding the interaction of anxiety and autism in brain and behavior and recent studies of sleep and autism and risk factors for suicidal thoughts and behaviors in young adults. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Glad to be here with both of you. Well, it's really an honor to have uh, two such passionate and qualified experts to discuss the treatment of autism in this film. Unlike other films that I've seen, at least, The Reason I Jump aims to help the viewer understand the experience of a nonverbal autistic through the resources of film. So it aims not just to capture the experiences of the subjects who are all nonverbal autistics from the outside, but to represent the world and their world and their experiences from the inside out to a certain degree. Film critic Roger Ebert once called film an empathy machine because it helps us understand someone's experience in a way that might be difficult through other mediums. It helps us understand perspectives that we often dismiss as strange or non-normative or abnormal. And I think this is the case in some ways in the way that autism has been treated in our culture and society. So Natalie and Michael, I'd like to begin with a kind of a larger philosophical question. What does it mean to be a normal human? What does it mean to see the world accurately? Who sees the world more accurately, people with autism or neurotypical people? And I think we sometimes take these questions for granted. Uh, In the film, there's an interesting discussion of time and the experience of time by an autistic person versus a neurotypical person. And it's interesting to note the way in which an autistic person experiences time in a way that sometimes we we talk about time maybe in a philosophical sense, right? That the time is this kind of larger flow. I think neurotypical people tend to kind of break time up into linear dimensions, right? And, and there's a little bit of a different experience that in some ways might be more insightful or even accurate to the way that time actually works. Michael, why don't we start with you really quickly and then turn to Natalie. Yeah, sure. I, I guess you asked this question, who sees the world more accurately? And I, I think from a sensory perspective, there are a lot of assumptions. There are, I, I guess I call them shortcuts. Our brain takes shortcuts to 
leave out sensory information and a lot of the illusions, visual and auditory illusions that we see take advantage of that. But, you know, imagine you're walking down the hall at work, but your, your pet, your, your, your favorite dog of 15 years has, has just passed away earlier in the day. And a colleague says to you, well, how are you doing? Probably the default answer is just to say fine and not say anything and, and keep moving on. But you're not really fine. And uh, when you walk into a room that's surrounded in sights and smells and sounds and, and uh, everything like that, your brain just shuts out a lot of it and, and you're not paying attention. Well, many autistic people, you know, want to see the world accurately. And, and so just saying fine and glossing over this big thing that's happened in your life isn't accurate. It's not, it's not true. It's a lie. And so why would you lie? Then they, they may come into that same room and experience all or, or most of the sounds and the visual stimuli. And, and it can be confusing. It can be overwhelming. I think there was a lovely image, a couple images in the movie where you're trying to make sense of the sensory stimuli and uh, say the idea that it's raining, but it's putting together lots of pieces of information right. that many people that don't have autism don't pay attention to. And, yeah, very nice. Oh, sorry, Natalie, go ahead. I'd like to add a little bit more to that too, is that I think, you know, the question of reality is a hard one to say because, you know, as Michael brought out, you know, we mask ourselves sometimes or we mask some of the sensory input from the world around us. But I would also say, from my experience with autistics, it's not just the sensory world. It's also the emotional world. The autism spectrum is very broad. And so sometimes it's hard to generalize about all autistics because it is so broad. But I think some of them feel emotions more deeply and more keenly than other people do as well. And I've noticed that in several ways. For example, with my son, going into a room, he can automatically tell how people feel about them, about mm -hmm. himself, without them even saying anything. And several years ago, I was doing a radio broadcast with BYU. And the technician after the radio broadcast turned to me and said, you know, I just want you to know that I'm also autistic and I do exactly the same thing. And so I think perhaps in my mind, sometimes autistics maybe see the world more deeply and more clearly than we do because they don't, may not have these mechanisms to block out all of the emotions or it's more difficult to control these emotions or these feelings because they feel them so much more strongly perhaps than we allow ourselves to feel. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And uh, I had this discussion in a, a class I was teaching yesterday at, at BYU, sort of an old myth, huge myth, but an, a persistent one that autistic people don't feel emotion. And that that's just not true. But as Natalie says, knowing what to do with the emotion can be difficult because it's felt so strongly. The emotions can be so overwhelming. And maybe knowing what those emotions are, sorting out angry from sad, can be difficult to put the language to. Sort of in, in the example you brought up of time, Mark, maybe emotions don't have the same words that neurotypical people are used to putting to them. And it's just such a, an overwhelming, powerful feeling. It, it can it can be difficult sometimes, but it might also be more accurate. And Interesting. Yeah. I, oh, sorry, Mark. I keep interrupting you. But no, just to carry on this emotion idea for just a moment. One other thing I've noticed that's becoming more and more apparent, particularly as adult autistics are able to express it, is the idea of empathy as well. And being able to sometimes 
feel or react to others' emotions, perhaps not sensing them in the way that we do or reacting in quite the way we do. I'll bring up my son, for example. He can tell immediately if I'm feeling sad or nervous, even if I'm trying to hide it very well. Mm. There's something that he sees that affects him and he notices. And he notices that for all the family. He's very, very sensitive to the emotional tone of the family. And I think that's becoming more apparent with a lot of adult autistics as well. Yeah, these are really nice points. I think this is something that I am learning as well about the condition because I, I was one who kind of thought that autistics didn't necessarily feel emotion in the same way. But I think what you're saying is that it's 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 a lot more, in some ways, keenly felt, right? Emotions, that they're almost, as we described, like empaths, right? In the sense that they're able to kind of pick up on emotional energy and they don't really have the mechanisms to really filter these things out in the same way that they don't really have the mechanisms to filter out sensory information as well. Is that accurate? Yeah, that seems fair. And and in some ways, it's powerful. And in some ways, it's confusing. And so because there are so many emotions coming in, like the sensory world, it can be overwhelming. And a, a lot of autistic adults use the word confusing about what other people are expecting, what what other people are feeling. And and it may be because people are lying to themselves and in, in, to one degree, but but yeah, it's a strong, uh, intense emotional world. And there's a moment, sorry, Natalie, there's a moment in the film where there, the, a young boy, I think from uh, England, who who feels this emotion, I think it was because there wasn't pizza or something, but he's, he's kind of feeling the emotion he felt several years ago. And, and so it almost seems like there's not really kind of this temporal factor as well, that these, these emotions can kind of almost like the way in, the, in which we might experience trauma, where we were kind of feeling the emotions of, or PTSD, we're feeling the emotions from the original kind of traumatic moment very keenly, maybe several years later. Is that something that is typical? I, I'm just going to mention this right now. You know, the, the, the experience that Josh, the boy in the film had, I yeah. think is very true, perhaps for the issue of time and okay. the issue of how do you control time? How do you see time? But I also want to be careful because one of the things that I think this movie is very good at is bringing out in the non-verbal autistic population, the differences between them. And right. I think as we talk about this, as we have this conversation, I think we have to be very careful about saying, you know, most autistics do this or all autistics do that. Because while there are some trends and similarities, I think there are also differences. I know that time and, and knowing the difference between past time and current time can be a, a problem for some autistics. And for some autistics, something triggers it and it brings back all of these previous emotions and feelings that they can't always you know, control or filter. But I just want to make that point that we have to be careful about kind of almost stereotyping autistic individuals in some ways. Right. Thank you. So um, in terms of the film, how did you, and for me, when watching this film, I, I really got a sense of, I think through the resources of film, being able to understand what it's like to not be able to filter out sensory stimulation. Is there part of the film that you thought did a pretty good job at demonstrating what it's like to experience the world from the perspective of somebody who has nonverbal autism? I thought there were many things that happened. I thought the variation in sounds or things became quite loud. Sometimes when the camera would focus very closely on particular images and where you were just seeing that one particular angle, I thought all of those were very good and very well done. 
And I thought seeing the experiences, particularly of Josh, and then if I have the name right, I think the the girl in Sierra Leone, Jessie, as I remember her name, both of them kind of gave an example of individuals that I think really struggle more with knowing how to deal with the sensory input in the world around them. And I think the film gave a good example of that, both seeing things from their point of view a little bit, as well as through sound and images helping us to feel it too. I, I agree. I loved the sound design on the film. You know, I wish I could have been viewing it in a, a large theater with a great sound system. But even watching it on my laptop, I jumped a few times. I, I felt the surrounding of, of the sounds coming in. I loved the way it was paired sometimes with some visual images. So I do think it gave a good sense of just the busyness and intensity of some of those sensory stimuli coming in. And, and it's, I mean, I don't have autism myself, but it, it felt true to me. And Michael, do you think it's, it's a, a valuable resource for somebody who doesn't have autism to be able to see a film like this and, and experience the world even, even a little bit? Yeah, you know, often, okay, so the question of challenging behavior is, is a pretty loaded question when in dealing with autism or other developmental concerns, like the time when Josh didn't think his dad was going to get the pizza and he was really on the verge of a meltdown his mom has a lot of experience and was able to just barely, you know, prevent that, that meltdown there. But so often we see educators and, and, and sometimes parents and anyone working with, with autistics responding to the response and not to the underlying issue, whatever is setting off, right? The uh, uh, uncertainty about the pizza or a sensory stimulation, I, I uh, have a friend whose brother as nonverbal and in his late 20s and is generally pretty calm, but, but just really started having some challenging behaviors over the course of six months. And it wasn't until after six months that someone realized he had an abscessed molar that he hadn't been able to express to people. And so he was responding to that stress. But anyone who's just essentially punishing him for his behavior or trying to correct that behavior without getting at the cause is missing the point. And so I think being able to see the, uh, like the sensory world from an autistic point of view is, is helpful to right. say, oh, so this is what it must be like. And I jumped a couple of times. And if that's how it is for many of artistic people, right, you're constantly on edge. Right. So that's useful. Yeah. I was wondering if that maybe is kind of a goal here of the film is to help us really kind of understand how sensory information unfiltered can affect us, right? Natalie, go ahead. Going back on what, building a little bit of what Michael was saying, a lot of times, at least the parental autistic world, we talk about that behavior is communication. Yeah. And that whatever behavior you see as your, is as a person's way to communicate to you, whether they are, you know, fully verbal, partially verbal or nonverbal, it's communication. And so you know, obviously, if you have someone throwing rocks at you, there have to be immediate steps taken to protect you and, you know, perhaps the person throwing rocks at you. But you really have to look at that underlying issue and and cause. And I think the film kind of tried to show that. I will say that, you know, I watched it with my autistic son. And as it was going through there, he was crying. And it really touched him very deeply emotionally because I think for him, 
these were images, ideas, and things that perhaps he feels very deeply, but that he's never seen expressed in this way before. Mm. And we actually spent a couple of hours after watching the film, kind of going through it, talking about it, processing it, helping him to kind of, you know, express what he wanted to say about it. Because it was so moving for him to finally see something that resembled him expressed on the expressed in a film. Right. Great. Yeah. Sorry, Michael, go ahead. No, I just say great. Um, you talk about communication, Natalie, and you know, the issue of voice and who can speak for an autistic person. I think the film is trying to give you this inside outlook, right? Rather than having autistic people as subjects of a film and looking at them as you'd look at, you know, any any kind of documentary subject, it's trying in some ways to give you an inside look, to put you in their perspective. Um, we're also getting the voice of an actor reading the translation of the source text, which is by Naoki, the Japanese boy, who is nonverbal autistic, but but wrote this text. It's been translated and then uh, and then included as part of the dialogue or part of the narration. What are the challenges, though, in, in for example, a nonverbal person communicating? And do they communicate in the same way? You talk about behaviors communication. How can we give them a voice? How can we facilitate voice, I guess, and their, their expression of self? When I was looking at one of the things that I found most moving about the film is that I felt like all of the parents were trying to find a way to communicate with their child and to, for their child to communicate with them. Right. And whether it was, I was really touched by Amrit, her communication through art and through drawing. Because if you talk with people like Temple Grandin, or even when I talk with my son, they say they see in pictures. Hmm. I think what touched me the most is that whatever methods the parents were using to try and communicate with their child, they honored their child's communication. Right. And whatever it was coming through to them, they honored that. And in their own way, we're trying to foster that, whether it was, you know, Amrit with her art, whether it was Josh going out and they're talking about what kind of Hoover he's hearing, whether it is even Jesse, you know, going out and trying to communicate with her more and trying to set up a school that she can be part of and all of this. I felt like they were all trying to find ways to honor their children and their and their children's own style of communication. Right. Thank you. Michael, what do you think? I love what Natalie said about parents discovering how each child communicates and respecting that and and working with that. I think we get into trouble when we are expecting others to communicate the way we expect them to, like, right, so I have this way of communicating and someone else has a different way of communicating, maybe with pictures, and so I judge that as a deficiency or a disability or something like that. I really liked the positive message given in the movie uh, for that respect. I, I do have some issues from a scientific perspective with the the letter pointing uh, based on a, a lot of years of research showing that that I guess I don't know. I don't I don't know how that book was written, and I hate to be skeptical of other people's points of view, but. Uh, the letter pointing doesn't have a a strong scientific history behind it. Yeah. I mean, talk more about that, Michael, because that seems to be kind of a quintessential moment in the film where you almost get the sense that they are communicating, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I I love the film up to that point, but I came into the field working uh, with autistics just uh, at the same time as 
as a lot of controversy over what was called facilitated communication, which is where you have a facilitator working with someone to point at these letters and to speak. But when you do simple experiments like show the autistic child an object, like say a blue ball, but don't let the facilitator see it, that they, they can't get that out. The, the facilitator has to know the answer in order to make that. But really at the heart of this, and I'm really interested in Natalie's perspective on this, is the idea of what it means to, to have autism, who can speak for autism, and what are expectations. And a lot of this work in the 90s on facilitated communication is based on the fact that there's an entirely, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, even audio-wise, a uh, normal child in there just waiting to come out. And so if we could sort of break through that shell of autism, the normal kid in here is going to communicate with us. And I, I think that's a that's disrespecting autism. That's disrespecting families. That's that's offering a, a sort of idea that, that everyone's the same. And I, I don't think autism is the same. I think autism is a important difference in the way that that we grow as people. Um, and so I, I always felt like that was trying to put everyone in the same box. And then the, all the claims for normalizing autism fell apart once they, they couldn't back it up in, in science. But for me, it's really at, at trying to make autism not be autism. And that's where I think the most harm is done. And I would like to say, you know, I, some of the more recent things I've said have been, there's been some changes and facilitated conversation and there may be something more to it. I have never tried that with my son and I don't personally know of anyone who has done that. However, I do agree that there was, I, I think in a lot of the history of autism and how autistics have been treated, there has been an effort to kind of normalize them and see it as a condition that has to be treated and changed so that they become more neurotypical. And whether you're looking at that with applied behavioral analysis, whether you're looking at that with, you know, other ways, that has been a big, there's been a big effort for that to push that forward. But what I will say is from my own experience and from experience people that I know, and I realize, you know, this isn't a scientific sample by any means, you know, my son's gone from being nonverbal to being partially verbal now. And as he gets older and older, he becomes more verbal. But I think that there's a lot more going on in an autistic's mind than sometimes they are able to express in a verbal way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest takeaway that I have from the issue of, you know, facilitated conversation is what can we do to help them be able to bring this out and express this more in my, in their lives and just the idea that just because they don't have expressive language doesn't mean that they don't understand what's going on around them necessarily. And it doesn't mean that they're not able to think. And it doesn't mean that they're not able to have some kind of intelligence. You could go on to a whole discussion about different types of intelligences. But in my own thing, I've noticed that, you know, my son will be sitting there sometimes, maybe across the room, maybe even in a, a different room. And we don't think that he's listening to us. But then he comes back and he acts in a way or says something that lets us know that he's heard everything that we've been talking about and he's understood it, even though his maybe level of, of expressive language is, is lower than, than what you would expect someone to have would be able to do that. So I think there's a lot more about what happens in an autistic's mind that we don't know. 
And that's one of the reasons I find it very helpful, you know, to talk to adult autistics about their experiences and how they experience things, because some of that also translates into the nonverbal community as well. Yeah, I I fully agree with that. And um, so getting back to a question you asked at the beginning, Mark, who has the you know right or ability to speak for autism, it is, as Natalie pointed out, difficult because there are so many varieties of autism. I, I actually consider them the autisms. I don't think of an autism. I think of lots of different autisms and and many differences, including differences in language. But I've, I've just had a review on something we put in where we were, are proposing to use self-report measures of depression and anxiety for autistic adults. And one of the reviewers said, well, how can you trust self-report data from autistics? And I'm like, well, who else are you going to ask, right? I mean, you could, of course, ask people that know them, but there are issues with the validation we've done on some of these measures. But people know themselves best then, you know, family members might know people next best. And then you have some psychologist or other mental health professional who sees them for a few hours in an office sometime. So who really knows best is is a question. And I think one answer is you need to put all the perspectives together. But I agree with Natalie that a nice thing about this film is showing that there is much more to the inner life of, you know, a, a nonverbal autistic person than, than we might assume. So the, the film gives insight into that. Yeah, thank you very much. I get a sense from talking with you, too, that there's this divide a little bit between this emphasis on normalizing patterns of connection and communication in a more neurotypical way, as opposed to really kind of honoring uh, neurodiversity in people. And, you know, it, it makes you think that we have this binary of neurodiverse and neurotypical, but really it is a spectrum, right? I mean, there's there's people who think in different ways and process information and, and feel emotion and, and experience time in different ways. There really is no kind of normative way uh, of doing it. And so, I mean, what are some other ways of building bridges between kind of this neurotypical and neurodiverse demographic of people? How can maybe neurotypical people learn to, to reach out a little bit more? Well, I'd like to speak to this first. I think at the very basis of this is the question of exposure and also the question of diversity, which has certainly become an issue of importance in the United States recently. How do we treat people that are different from us? Whether we're looking at it in terms of racial differences, whether we're looking at it in terms of maybe differences in neurology or differences in disability. Um, How do we relate to these people and how do we see them as people of value? And I would say one of the biggest issues is finding ways where they can interact together or be with each other mm. and also finding ways that, you know, they can find value in each other. One of the biggest problems, I'll just talk about Utah for a moment, we face is that generally in education and also in activities, the disabled, including autistics, are separated from the non-disabled or the neurotypicals. And the way that, that the neurotypicals are taught to think about the autistics are kind of in a very patronizing way. For example, these are the kids that we go help this time. Well, these are the kids that we do things or, oh, these poor kids. And I think when you have those type of attitudes, and I've seen it in church in Utah, I've seen it in schools, when you have that type of attitude towards someone else, you're seeing them as less, as less human than you are and not equal to who you are. And I think the more exposure that you have to someone, and there can be training on both sides. Um, Someone pointed out recently that we spend a lot of time 
trying to teach autistics how to deal with neurotypicals? Well, what if we spent the same amount of time teaching neurotypicals how to deal with autistics? Mm. And so just because of what the way we've structured things, we've limited that ability to build that bridge. And I think that's one of the next challenges that needs to be faced in you know, education, church, and society. I, I fully agree. And there's now a lot of research work going towards this, what, what we call the double empathy pr- problem, which is to say, okay, autistics have a, a difficult time understanding the expectations and motivations of neurotypical people, but it's every bit is true that neurotypical people have a hard time understanding the expectations, styles of communication and so forth of autistic and other neurodiverse people. It really is a two-way street. And some of the work my colleagues in Texas are doing shows that in fact, the success of communication when things are are mixed between autism and non-autism, for example, depends on the social skills of the non-autistic person. Mm. And uh, so you can make this work, but it's the difference in styles where things get difficult, but it's absolutely a two-way street. And so by isolating neurodiverse people and saying, you're the ones that need fixing and we're going to give you all this training, uh, we, we miss half the equation or at least half the equation. And also in my work in mental health, that lack of acceptance is devastating. And we see things like rates of suicide for people with autism are anywhere between three to nine times higher than rates of suicide of people without autism. And as we start to look at this, a lot of it is just feeling rejected, feeling left out by those neurotypical peers. And I would like to add more about that with what I see with my own son a little bit. I'm trying to respect his privacy to a certain extent. But when he was younger, you know, he was never invited to neighborhood birthday parties. At church, he when he started going to primary, he was told that he could not be with other kids because it would make a bad experience for the other kids. And, you know, years of this building up makes you feel like, for the autistic individual, to feel like they are less than. Mm. And they can't achieve what other people can. And what in the idea of hiding or masking. One thing that came up in my discussion of my with my son about the movie is that he he wanted people to see it, but he was also afraid of people to see it. And he was afraid of people to see it because he f- thought, you know, if they really knew what autistics were like and this was their, and he was afraid of like his secrets getting out. And he thought, well, if they really know this and they won't like me. And I think this is the issue of, you know, feeling rejected and feeling like you don't fit in. And I think that too often is a burden that the neurodiverse carry. Yeah. And um, I mean, I I just can't emphasize that enough. And I do have to respect confidentiality, but just I I spoke for a couple hours uh, a couple weeks ago with an autistic adult, a young adult who did just die by suicide. And hearing how he was treated in his church congregation in his ward by a seminary teacher, by teachers at school, it's just heartbreaking. I don't want to dwell on the negative, but the the rejection he faced in his neighborhood and at church, it's just heartbreaking. And and I would echo that. Scratch, you talk to any parent of an autistic individual, and I would say 90% of them will have experiences like that. At least. And the numbers may be higher, but it's, you know, everybody has stories. I have stories about my son. 
he was fortunate that when he hit the young men's age, the young men's organization in the in the congregation at that time did that. But it's not just the autistic individual who suffers in that situation. It's also the family around them. Hmm. Um, and there was a phrase that I've heard that you're only accepted as the least accepted member of your family. And hmm. and there's also a lot of psychological damage that happens to parents and others as they get rejected by their church congregations or wards because of their son or they or daughter and they see the struggles that their child has and they themselves it can cause significant you know PTSD and other damage to them as well sure they feel feel the feelings of being left out even more keenly in in many yeah, instances indeed yeah yeah. Um, in closing, I wanted to just ask a little bit more about uh, supports and inclusion. You mentioned inclusivity as an important way for autistics to reach their potential. What are some other specific things that are necessary for them to really thrive? One thing I'll bring out and one thing that I realized after the movie is you notice almost all of these parents have some kind of resources, maybe probably monetary resources. Mm. You know, Amrit's parents, you know, in India, they obviously have resources to enable her to buy her art supplies, to frame it, to have a show for herself. You know, in Josh's family, they have the possibility of, you know, different schools, residential treatments. And if you're looking at all of them in some way or another, have this money that they were able to spend. And one of the biggest issues is the lack of funding for supports. If you're not a family of means... It's very difficult to find the supports, the structure, the ability to help your child become who they can. And you might say, well, the educational system does that. But there's a huge disparity in the educational system in terms of spending, depending on which state you live in in the United States. For example, someplace like Ohio spends twice as much as what Utah does on a neurodiverse child. Mm. And when my son was first diagnosed, the pediatric to me, the developmental pediatrician, Dr. Judith Arano, pointed out that, you know, it's hard to know what your child will will become, what their potential is, without knowing, you know, what kind of supports and education they're going to be able to receive. And unfortunately, that comes with money. And that's not something that we've been willing to throw at the problem in many ways. Yeah, I mean, I, I just agree with all of that. What I would add, we've talked about acceptance, and I, I think we start and we end with acceptance. There are other things. Um, if we, for example, just take the sensory experience, there's some lovely things now where um, the Welsh Parliament, for example, I happen to be in, in Cardiff and, and went to Parliament, and they have a whole booklet for autistic people about what they're going to experience from a sensory perspective and and what people are going to be where and things. And now many football stadiums and baseball stadiums in the United States have packets where they say, this is where the noise is, right? This is what you can expect at this time. So helping to build those expectations is important. Uh, at the same time, we can't make the whole world a safe place for our autistics. And, and so, you know, we do need to teach coping skills and, and management skills for what happens when you get in this overwhelming situation. So certainly that support is important. But I really think it comes down to all of us being able to accept all, each other no matter what and accepting that autism is a fairly common though still not majority way of seeing the world and stop rejecting and, and start accepting. 
Yes. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really great discussion, very insightful discussion about an issue that we don't really understand very well. And I think hopefully this film will maybe draw our attention to a little bit more. So thank you very much, uh, Natalie and Michael, for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. Tune into our podcast each week for insightful discussion of the film streaming at IC by specialists who will be joining us on our podcast this semester. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Maria Hegstrom-Pratt. We would also like to acknowledge the musical talents of Johnny Stallings, who wrote and recorded music for the podcast. Until next week, keep streaming. Thank you.